It's Monday, February 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Asset Management, Tim Hanson, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, guys. Hey there. Yo. Good weekend? Yeah. <laughs> it's very good. You just caught up in your sleep, didn't you? When you got little kids. I, you know, I was I was lucky enough to sleep in at 6.30 this morning. Wow. Which was spectacular. Yep. And that came after, uh, came after a, a, a Sunday highlighted by my dropping... 22 points in my Geezer League basketball game. Nice. Hey. So I think you won. That was week. a big weekend. That's I was in a good mood. You won the weekend. Um, we're going to talk beverages today, alcoholic beverages and non-alcoholic beverages. Uh, but we're going to start with the latest from Apple. IDC Research is reporting that Apple's iPhone fourth quarter shipments to India were roughly three to four times greater than what they were in the third quarter. And the main reasons for that are the iPhone 5, but also... Uh, Jason, what appears to be a much more aggressive approach to the overall Indian market. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that's the the initial takeaway. I think uh, Tim Cook made it a point to state that that they're still focused more on China than, than India uh, for right now. But you know, the, over the quarter, they just opened up their iTunes store uh, to make it accessible for for folks in India, which is I think important uh, in sort of, of building that uh, that hardware presence there with the iPhones. And because you have all these iterations of iPhones from the three, three S, four, four S, and so on. You know the difference between their market there and ours here. They don't get the subsidies for the phone, so it's definitely more of a price sensitive issue there. Uh, but I thought it was interesting to see that they were actually working out payment plans and financing for some of these phones. Uh, that you know, when you're talking about a phone, that's that's kind of a big leap when you actually have to finance right. it or something. But you know, the bottom line is it's a country of of a billion plus people, so you need to really look at that as a potential market. Tim, you've actually. Traveled through India. You've met- going there next month. Are you really? I am. Yeah. Um, well, then report back on, on what you see on the smartphone. I will. Do I will do you see on the ground. I will count them. <laughs> um, but what about that that point that, that Jason mentioned? The whole notion of working with local distributors on these sort of installment plan so that you know people are paying on an ongoing basis for their phone rather than sort of facing this one lump sum massive payment. Yeah, that's something Apple's ne- going to need to figure out. Um, you know, not just in India, but I think that would be a, a viable strategy in some ways in China and other emerging markets where it wants to go where, you know, a $1,000 on subsidized phone, I don't know, what, what do they sell for now on subsidized? Somewhere around the 690 690 Yeah, like that. yeah that's, a big, that's a big expenditure for someone who's making Somewhere between you know two thousand and five thousand dollars a year, let's say. Right. Um, so you know that that they need that to increase volume, and and you know some people were talking about uh, you know we talked about the story a few weeks ago. Should they do a less expensive iPhone, you know, an entry level iPhone? And, and people, I think that universally thought that would be bad for the brand. But the way around that would be to be, get creative about payments and financing. And obviously, with its cash cushion, Apple can be generous about financing. Um, they get they have very cheap capital. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's one hurdle they need to solve. Uh, India is an interesting market because it's, you know, hugely competitive in the cell phone space. So they're probably not going to do many or any carrier deals. Um, so I don't know, you know, if they, if they want to experiment with Apple stores, you know, somewhere like that. I think there are a lot of ways to go. But as the Chinese market slows down for them, and, and it's been reported that, you know, the, the iPhone is not quite as desirable as it has been in the past there, you know, nat- naturally – you know, look look a little bit south and 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 uh, west. And you have another big market. And I mean, you have to look at the, the the financial challenges with this because if you, I mean, in the United States, for example, GDP GDP per capita of around fifty thousand dollars. China around ninety one hundred dollars. When you go to India, that drops down to around thirty nine hundred dollars. So it's obviously a bigger financial hurdle, not only for the Chinese but for for folks in India as well. 
And uh, I, I think, yeah, I think Tim hit on something there with you know, producing the cheaper phone. I mean, on the one hand, it might be an easy way for them to try to jump into that market where Samsung is just smoking them in these overseas sort of emerging markets. Uh, but if they if they can get creative with financing, I mean, they did adhere to a degree when we when we uh, were in the market for getting my iPad, for example, and there was a point there on the site in the Apple store where they said, well, if you wanted to buy, you, you could max out at buying two iPads at a time, but if you needed to split it among different credit cards, they were even permitting you to do that. So that was a you know, financing plan to a degree even for us here. Uh, so I think that uh, that's certainly something they'll, they'll look at as a, as a way to help pick up share. Well, we talk all the time about the cash they have on the balance sheet, over $137 billion, and people have made the point that most of that cash is overseas. So it would yeah. seem like at least in this particular case, this would be an opportunity to really deploy that cash. But I guess my question, Tim, is how much upside is there going to be? Like, If they do go after market share at the expense of short-term profitability, is that something that is likely to pay off for them in the long run? Well, I mean, <clears throat> so they obviously – they wouldn't probably use any of their cash to give to consumers or anything like that. Basically, they would just use their cash balance to invest more in working capital – and allow them to lengthen their cash conversion cycle to let consumers pay off, you know, more gradually along the way. Um, you know, they, they they should be able to do that pretty generously with their cash, and they're probably, you know, they're probably that's one reason why they've been so, you know, why they've husbanded their cash so closely is because husbanded? they they want to have that flex. So that's a word. Okay, that was very accusatory, Chris. Thank <laughs> you. Mac is giving me the thumbs up. That is indeed a word. Okay. Um, I've now lost my train of thought entirely. <laughs> I think you were making a point about their cash. Well, it's interesting to sort of see this this change. I mean, where you you wonder how much value they see potentially in getting that hardware into consumers' hands, so that they can prompt the the just the sort of uh, the sales, the ongoing sales of, of having someone you know in their ecosystem. For example, right. the iTunes, iTunes Store, whether they're buying audio content or video content or apps or whatever it may be, you, you wonder if they're not trying to sort of catch on beyond that hardware uh, sale to to the benefits of the the longer tail uh, ecosystem route. Well, the, the ecosystem, like iTunes, doesn't exist in China, right? I don't think it is. I, well, I'm not sure about China, but I know I, I was looking through the call here last quarter, and it just opened up accessibility in India. Uh, yeah, well, so you know, so China, sure China, me- China, China yeah. media is censored, so I don't think they have that ecosystem opportunity, which is one reason why I think they've struggled a little bit more. Because, you know, if the iPhone just stands on its own merits without the ecosystem, the switching cost is yeah. a lot lower. Right. Exactly. Obviously, India, I believe there's some level of, of, of media control um, specifically, I don't know what, how that would play into the store, but, but being able to integrate the ecosystem with the hardware, the hardware and the software together is really where their power play is. And, to, you know, they, sh- you know, obviously no one disputes they're going into China as being probably a pretty good idea. Um, you know, but having said that, they're without one of their major competitive advantages there. 2012 was a strong year for U.S. spirit sales. American whiskey was a big part of that growth. Uh, but That may be changing based on our next story. Uh, Executives at Maker's Mark Bourbon have announced they are reducing the amount of alcohol in the bourbon to meet a rise in global demand, which I guess, Tim, is a diplomatic way of saying they're going to start watering down their whiskey. They're pre-icing it for you. They're (laughs) pre-icing it, but the ice is melted. The the alcohol volume is going from 45% down to 42%. Um, this is this is kind of. I mean, we were trading emails about this over the weekend. You were the one who pointed out this story to me because we're both bourbon aficionados. Um, but the more I read about the story, the more it seems like yes, uh, their rationale for hey, look, we have a global market opportunity that we didn't really have a few years ago as tariffs get listed uh, lifted in places like Korea and Russia and that sort of thing. 
But on the flip side, their hardcore base, their incredibly loyal uh, brand ambassadors appear to be apoplectic about this move. Well, they claim that they haven't changed the taste profile at all. So obviously that... How is that possible? I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you, you would think you're taking out some of the bite, you know, some of the backbone at the end. I haven't tasted it, so I can't, I can't speak to that. Um, it's just that's their claim at present. Right. And, um, you know, if, if that's true, maybe, you know, not potentially as damaging as it would seem to be at first blush. You know, we talked a little bit about Apple and working capital. You know, for a bourbon company like Maker's Mark, managing working capital is critically important and really hard. I mean, they were saying it takes six years of aging right. to go from production to, to, to sales. So, you know, they basically incorrectly forecast six years ago what demand would be today, and now they don't have enough liquor to meet it. Um, you know, Maker's Mark sits, I guess, it's not a, a, an entry-level bourbon, but nor is it a super premium bourbon. So, you know, within the Beam portfolio, that also includes, you know, I guess Jim Beam on the slightly lower end, and then Knob like Creek, Basil Hayden, Booker's, yep. I think, at the at the really top end. You know, you know, the place where it makes sense to expand capacity is in that like, you know, somewhat luxurious segment, which is Maker's Mark. So, you know, I'd be intrigued to look at the emails that were traded between Maker's Mark and the Beam Corporation as right. to who was driving this decision to change a, a time-honored brand. For the sake of grabbing more sales today, um, I suspect the impetus probably came from the Beam Corporation, and the Maker's Mark found a way to make it work. You know, but you'll see. You know, when you damage a brand, it's hard to repair. Uh, speaking of the brand, uh, the the Samuels family is the ones that started Maker's Mark. Bill Samuels started it uh, nearly sixty years ago. Uh, he passed control of it down to his son, Bill Jr., and now uh, Bill Jr.'s son, Rob, is the chief operating officer. It looks to be, um, at least uh, from a media standpoint, the guy that they're putting out front of this. Uh, but Bill uh, Jr. used to tell a story about his dad when his dad essentially handed control of the company over to him. And the one thing Bill Sr. said to his son was, don't f*** up the whiskey. <laughs> And 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 Mac will go ahead and bleep that out. Um, but but uh, but and, it's good and, advice. And, it's and, good and, advice, and it's a direct quote. Um, but it, it seems like you know to to Tim's point, Jason. Uh, it seems like oh boy, they took. I, I guess I look at it and say, you know what? I see the market opportunity. I see from a business standpoint why you are why you are doing this. But if you're willing to do this, if you're willing to make this move. You'll do anything for the sake of profit. And I think that's that's part of what this message conveys, is that rather than just deal with a shortage and raise prices, <clears throat> they're going to go ahead and try to water this stuff down and, and get more of it out there. But I think you keyed in on something there that they more or less misforecast this six years ago. Uh, one thing they have been doing is you know, a few acquisitions here and there. Uh, the What was it? The White Rock Distilleries acquisition recently. They're trying to sort of expand that portfolio with more vodka products because traditionally Beam has been very bourbon heavy. Yep. Uh, uh, Maker's Mark is one of their power brands, which essentially contributes about 60% of sales. Uh, it's it's one of many in that power brand. So so if, if Maker's Mark were to suffer, I don't know that it would be tremendously debilitating to the company. But the longer-term risk there that you bring up is if they'll do this, they might just do anything. And, and to Tim's point, when you, when you really screw up a brand like that, it's tough to recover. The number one American whiskey in terms of global sales is Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels has changed the recipe twice in the last 25 years. Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, it was... Uh, 90 proof, then it got knocked down to 86, then uh, back in 2004, knocked down to 80. And they have a barbecue sauce. They, they, they've got some lovely ancillary <laughs> products, I'm not going to lie. Um, 
that clearly did not affect Jack Daniel's standing as the number one American whiskey. Um, clearly, the people at Brown Foreman, the parent company, were okay with that. Do you think that ultimately, while this may hurt Maker's Mark with its hardcore base in the short term, from the long run, you know, five years from now, they're going to look back and say, this was the smartest thing we ever did to meet global demand. Yeah, I mean, it depends what, what they're trying to position Maker's Mark at. My, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm incorrect in thinking this, but my perception of Jack Daniels is that it has moved down over the past 25 years and is now more of a mass brand. You know, and they put I their, think that's a safe assumption. And they yeah, put, no, the, they put right. their brand on, on barbecue sauces. Yeah, and, you know, that's they, a safe assumption. They're, they're a little bit more marketing-y. Yep. And whereas Maker's Mark has still a little bit more cachet among the, among the, the, the discerning bourbon drinker. Um, and, and you know, and, and it may be the fact that with all these top level brands that they have in the portfolio, that instead they don't want to raise prices because they actually want to push makers into the mass segment, and they've got they've got things waiting to replace it. And if you know a maker's mark drinker decides to move up and buy Booker's, well, that's actually a win for Beam probably because it right. frees up inventory to sell somewhere else, and they're selling more of their high end, you know, ostensibly higher profit um, um, bourbon. So. You know, this could end up being a very, a very smart business decision. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit dangerous, um, but you know, they may be comfortable with what they're, the way they're positioned in their portfolio, and and you know, with more and more, you know, boutique bourbons and things being made, all, you know, every day it seems around in the United States, pushing down into the mass segment where it's somewhat less competitive because there are fewer, fewer labels. Um, you know, maybe that's the smart thing to do from a sales perspective. Uh, before we get to our last story, I have to mention last uh, Thursday and Friday, we had two member events in Washington, D.C. for uh, Motley Fool One. Jason, you, you and I were there on Thursday and, yes. uh, and uh, Million Dollar Portfolio on Friday. Um, and, and it was just great. I mean, it was it was great in part because uh, I got the opportunity to MC both events. It was a lot of fun. But it was also great because there were people coming up and introducing themselves and, and saying they listen to Market Foolery. Yeah, I think we probably determined that we have more than dozens of listeners by virtue of the fact that we had more than dozens <clears throat> excuse me, of people coming up and telling you that they were, depends, in fact, one of the dozens It depends how many listeners. dozens you want to count. Right, I, I mean, guess. Yeah, uh, uh, but it was great. I mean, people <laughs> coming up and you know saying, hey, I'm one of your dozens of listeners, people from Texas and North Carolina and Michigan and and Kansas, and it was it was just really great. So thank you to, to everyone who- Those uh, are all real states. Those are all real states. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, dozens of listeners. Uh, the other thing I have to mention is on Thursday, one of the guest speaker uh, was Dr. Russ Roberts, who's an economist at George Mason University. He hosts uh, a podcast called Econ Talk. And for anyone interested, I strongly recommend checking it out. I had never met him. Heard, I'd never even heard of Russ Roberts before last Friday. And he was incredibly entertaining and insightful. And uh, definitely, uh, if you're looking for another podcast to check out besides Market Foolery, uh, Econ Talk with Dr. Russ Roberts, uh, highly recommend it. Mountain Dew is introducing a new breakfast drink called Kickstart. Uh, it is some combination of the Mountain Dew flavor plus 5% juice, plus caffeine. That just happened, Chris. (laughs) That just happened. That just happened. Uh, Pepsi, the parent company, says it does not consider Kickstart to be an energy drink, uh, saying that it has far less caffeine than drinks like Monster Beverage, Red Bull. Uh, And yet, it does come in flavors, and I'm quoting here, flavors like energizing orange citrus and energizing fruit punch. I don't know why anyone would think it's an energy drink. They say energy. With flavor (laughs) names like that. What do we think of this? Is this gonna is this gonna help? Look, them? if you're gonna start characterizing misleading packaging in America, 
We're going to be here a long time. I think we are going to be. We don't have that much time. Um, I don't know. This just seems like one of those. I was never a big Mountain Dew fan. And kind of like we were talking about with Maker's Mark, there's clearly a market opportunity that Pepsi sees here. And yet I just grimace when I see stories like this because it just strikes me as disgusting. I think the biggest takeaway from this is that the true energy drink is, you know, a 16-ounce cup of Starbucks coffee. I mean, the differential here, 330 milligrams of caffeine versus the 92 for the kickstart. I mean, that's... Oh, boy, he's got his iPad out. Yeah. Watch out. a big deal. <laughs> well, and, stats. And, and, and Pepsi is saying that, hey, we did this. Because our market research shows that there are people who are looking for a drink in the morning and coffee and tea just doesn't cut it. I don't know. I, 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 again, I just sort of – Well, I mean even it. Starbucks. Starbucks realized that, right? That, that there, are, there are a lot of non-coffee drinkers out there looking for a, a jolt in the morning. Aren't they doing that? Well, they're doing the – That weird like coffee like bean like extract drink. Yeah. yeah. Is that it's what a refresher. refresher? It's like a fruit. It's like a lime one and a berry one and it's just – yeah, it's, it doesn't taste so like I think, coffee I think the, the market opportunity is – Probably does exist. I don't dispute that. And Pepsi has been a lower growth, um, you know, beverage sales story in the United States. They're probably looking to, you know, to, to, to juice that up a little bit. And um, this is their solution. I, 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 I don't foresee it doing terribly well. Um, I could be wrong, but you know, I, you know, I think at the, end, I, you know, it's. They were all excited because since it has like five percent juice, it's not a soft drink, which right. is also so misleading. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't, I don't see this being a good solution for the people who. How much sugar does it have? I Do they have that on there. It was just a focus on and that. Yeah. Sugar is killer. You know what else has uh, juice? obesity in a can? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what else has juice in it? A screwdriver. Yes. yes it <laughs> so does. I mean, by that rationale, cosmopolitan. <laughs> Um, <laughs> hey, let's just list them off. I think you know what I think we do. I think you get back from India. Yeah, you report on what you find out in the smartphone market and to- anything else there. And by that time, we'll have gotten our hands on this Kickstart drink. Okay, and the new makers, the new makers. I think and just, we yeah, just load up a taste test of, <laughs> of makers and then a little Kickstart to just get us going through the I rest of the day. It could be an entertaining eighteen minutes of, yeah. of podcastery, or that we may or hours. may not remember. <laughs> Jason Moser, Tim Hansen. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.